Before we get into our passages, I'd like for us to take a moment to hear what Jesus says regarding himself being the purpose of the entirety of Scripture. Not just the epistles, not just the gospel narratives, but all of the Bible. These are Jesus' words to his disciples after the resurrection, which we can find in Luke 24, verses 44 through 47. The word of God reads, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The message of the Bible centers in on Jesus. This is why this morning we can open up Hosea and hear preaching from God's word. Jesus was the focal point of the law and the prophets. And while Hosea had an original audience, Israel, we as believers are part of the larger audience that God had intended to address through the pen of the prophets. When we approach the Bible, we must understand that God has a message written for us on every page of Scripture. That message is Jesus. This morning, we have the privilege of opening up Hosea and seeing how our passage connects to Jesus. So let's turn to chapter 8. We're going to begin at verse 1, and we will read the entirety of chapter 8 and chapter 9. If you don't know where Hosea is, you can find him right after the big prophets. They call them the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah, then Daniel. Hosea is right after Daniel. Starting at verse 1, this is God's word written to us. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it, it is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces, for they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. 
it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the kings and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. Days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet the fowler's snare is on all his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah, he will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, 
what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Let's pray. Father, I need your help this morning in opening this word and preaching from it. I need your help because it's weighty. And I am weighed down by my inability at times to speak. So speak clearly through me this morning so that your people would hear, so that they would hear Hosea's message clearly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In this, the opening paragraph of his classic, A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens provides the reader with a, a depiction of what life was like in London and Paris in 1775. The aristocratic parties of both of these cities were living in extravagant wealth, while further impoverishing the lower classes within their respective societies. Dickens, ever the brilliant social commentator, tells the reader in this opening paragraph and chapter that life for some of these elites was good. It was so good, in fact, they lived under the false assumption that life would always be this way. Unbeknownst to these Londoners and Parisians, a day of reckoning was headed their way. Dickens' tale is not so different than the one we've read about during our journey through Hosea. Throughout this book, we have witnessed a people, Israel, living in conditions that were somewhat similar. They enjoyed a, level, a certain level of peace and prosperity, while they themselves lived under the false pretense that all was well with how they lived. What Hosea intended to do, much like Dickens, was sound the warning to Israel that their day of reckoning was fast approaching. We were to summarize the entirety of chapters 8 and 9. We could say that the prognosis for Israel's sinful condition, their sinful lifestyle, was dire. What plagued the Israelites and what tends to plague the church today is an embracing of worldliness 
and idolatry. I have two points for us to consider of the text this morning. First, the prognosis of sin. And two, the cure. First point, the prognosis of sin. What we've read in Hosea and have heard preached during this series is how God's people have gone from whoredom to outright abandonment of their divine husband. There have been moments, however, where we've seen the gracious character of God as he attempts to woo back his precious bride. Chapter 3 demonstrated this sheer and utter grace of God as he uses Hosea's marriage and pursuit of a prostitute to symbolize the love that God has for his promiscuous people. Despite this people, the Israelites, proclivity to rebel against this God who loves and cares for them, the Lord continues this pursuit of this whorish people. The undercurrent of grace and mercy that lies so close to the heart of God's nature is on full display in this book. But there is another story that comes to the fore. In the dark recesses of the heart of this people was a growing behemoth. Sin, the insidious captor of the hearts of men and women, rears its ugly head as the people become engrossed into a deep state of sin. Immediately, in verse 1 of chapter, chapter 8, we find evidence of, spirit, of Israel's spiritual prognosis. Verse 1 reads, Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Now we must ask ourselves, what covenant is Hosea referring to? I believe we have a clue in the phrase, rebelled against my law, which refers to the law given by God through Moses at Mount Sinai. The people of God, a few centuries prior to Hosea's prophecy, had heard about God's law. But they didn't just hear, they bound themselves in obedience to it. We see this in Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The Lord 
had committed himself to this people. And now he was calling this people to commit to him. Our chapters begin with a summation of what God's people, after the Exodus, failed to do. They failed to submit themselves to the law of God, and they failed to submit themselves to God himself. We could state this with even more brevity and say, the Israelites were disobedient. Israel's rebellious attitude and rejection of this law was an affront on God himself. But it doesn't end here. Not only was Israel guilty of violating the the covenant stipulations laid out by God under the Mosaic law, but they also took things a step further, and they attempted to offset their disobedience through worship. Verse 2, To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Through false piety, Israel attempted to invoke the Lord to remember the covenant God had made with them. Essentially, the Israelites were making a claim on the Lord's commitment to keep covenant with Israel. While denying any responsibility of their own to remain obedient to God and his commands. You see, the Israelites were not only engaged in sin, but they attempted to justify this sinful behavior with worship. I think it's beneficial to point out that calling on God and invoking his name are what God's people were designed to do. We were each made with that purpose to know and worship the Lord in an intimate manner. This wasn't what the Israelites were doing. The Israelites were like like those calling on the Lord, of which Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The sin doesn't end here. Israel, in verse 4, is guilty of political idolatry as they appointed kings and set up princes apart from seeking the wisdom and counsel of God. Further idolatry is detailed in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 8 as we read of God spurning the calf. Another reference to Israel's idolatry. Political idolatry and sinful acts of rebellion mark these chapters. The people are no longer binding themselves to God, but are instead binding themselves in allegiance to nations that are bent on destroying Israel. Verses 8 through 10 describe how Israel sought lovers in other nations, which indicates their breaking of the marriage vows with the Lord. Israel embraced worldliness by taking forms of worship from these neighboring cultures 
and they attempted to fuse these cultic beliefs with the way the Lord had prescribed Israel to worship him. The theological term for this is syncretism, which is really just a fancy way of saying that Israel added another notch to their bedpost of spiritual whoredom. Israel was trying to preserve some semblance of religiosity through their syncretism, but really, this false religion was just sin wrapped up nicely, tidied up with a cute little bow. Recently, we were in the book of James, and James writes on the prognosis of sin. He writes in chapter 1, verse 15, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Israel's sin was fully grown by this point, and it was sending them straight toward their death. We have an immense privilege as believers. We have this, our Bibles, the entire canon of Scripture. We can read and open it up and read from Genesis to Revelation and find a robust definition of what sin is and what sin leads to. But Israel, they also knew that sin would bring forth death. They knew how the law given to them by Moses outlines in the book of Leviticus that any who profane God's name was guilty and would be put to death. This was exactly what Israel was doing. They profaned the name of God through their syncretistic worship. Their sin was punishable by death. It is obvious at this point in our reading that Israel has a remarkable penchant and appetite for sin. Ironically, in chapter 9, we read that one of the judgments being laid out against Ephraim, in verses 14 and 16, is that they would be fruitless. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why is this ironic? Well, it's ironic because in their syncretistic worship, The Israelites believed that these Baals, the false gods of the the neighboring nations, would give them fertility. Sin will often, often lead those under its power to some very, very dark places and to some very, very illogical conclusions. So, I want to pause here and pose this rhetorical question to you as you're hearing me rant and rave about what was happening in Israel during Hosea's time. Consider this question. Are we understanding Hosea's message clearly? Do we understand what is going on? Israel was in direct violation of something that God held in precious esteem covenant with his people. The Lord had delivered Israel from slavery to Egypt only for Israel to wander right back into slavery to sin. Now, it's time for Israel to pay the price. 
No longer would God's people experience God's blessing of safety and security. The Israelites were guilty of grievous sin, and the prognosis of their commitment to their many sins is now national death. We see a climax to Hosea's prophecy in chapter 9, verse 17, when Hosea writes, My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. The prognosis is dire indeed. Earlier, we learned how the first verse of chapter 8 references or points us back to the Mosaic Covenant. This covenant was made with the people at Mount Sinai, and it was here Israel was given clear instruction on what they would receive as blessings for their obedience to the Lord. It was also at Mount Sinai where Israel received very clear instructions on what they would receive for their disobedience to the Lord, if they were in fact disobedient. Obviously, Israel chose the latter, and we are now seeing the fruit of their disobedience. But what's remarkable to note about this passage in Leviticus 26 is that the, it is almost as if the Lord knew the Israelites would disobey. Because at the end of Leviticus 26, he provides Israel a way out. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 40 through 42 read, But if they, Israel, confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. If Israel confesses their iniquity, then the Lord would remember his covenant with them. This now leads us to our second point, the cure. Hosea has provided us a very, very clear picture. Israel was guilty of every charge laid up against them. The prognosis of their sin is death. But God is faithful to provide a cure. I mentioned just a few moments ago how we have the blessing of our completed canon, our Bibles. We know that Hosea's prophecy leads to Israel's expulsion from the land and their death as a nation. They experience foreign occupation and hardship as a direct result of their sin. You can read about this in the other books written by the major and minor prophets. But as we follow the thread of redemptive history through the Bible, we see something radical take place. 
God, in his omnipotence, love, and care for his people, sends his son, the new Israel, to fully obey the covenant stipulations. Where the first Israel failed to obey, the second Israel, Jesus, perfectly obeys. The first Israel cried out to the Lord, My God, we, Israel, know you. And they did so with pretension. And they deserved immediate destruction for their wickedness. The second Israel cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And was destroyed undeservedly. Toward the first Israel, God displayed centuries of patience and long-suffering over their sinful rebellion. The second Israel never rebelled nor sinned, yet God pours out his fury and wrath on him so that sinners who do rebel and sin might be saved. Christian, God has provided the cure for our sin, his son. At one time, we were just like these Israelites. We deserved God's wrath. We deserved death. We, like the Israelites, deserved punishment for our disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. This is the gospel. This is the cure for our worldliness and our idolatry. What I want to do now is help us collectively understand that the gospel, this cure, it's not just a vaccine we receive at one time in one or two booster shots. We can't just say a prayer, accept Christ as our Savior, then walk away and live lives however we want to live them. The gospel, this good news about who Jesus is and what he has done, is the very means by which we are saved. But it is also an ongoing tonic which helps us to fight and fight and fight against our own bent toward worldliness and idolatry. Those who are truly in Christ will treasure this tonic and be empowered by the Spirit to kill and slay their sin. You may be here this morning and have been living under the same false pretense Israel possessed, thinking that you are safe. Life might be going very well. The bank account was looking good, and the family is getting along nicely. You come to church every Sunday. And you may even read your Bible regularly. But you're living in unrepentant sin. Perhaps that sin is pornography, materialism, or pride. You, like the Israelites, might be crafting your own idol to worship. The idol of family. The idol of comfort. Extreme nationalism. 
Like these Israelites, you have prostituted yourself and have bound yourself to false gods. Like the Israelites, when things get hard, you too cry out, My God, I know you. But you're presuming on a relationship that holds no weight. You're living your life in reckless abandonment. And the irony is, these gods provide no comfort nor joy. What we all needed was a cure. That cure is the gospel. And you, blood-bought Christian, can be reminded of God's great love for you. This tonic is for you this morning. Now, if you're not a Christian, please hear this. You need to be cured. I pray the Spirit of God brings conviction upon your heart and you realize the seriousness of your condition. Life may, might be looking good now, but the, a day of reckoning is headed your way. Trust in Jesus. Friend, if you have received the gospel and have embraced it by faith, you have received the greatest medicine you could ever receive. Regenerated Christians are people who rely on Christ through repentance and faith. This doesn't mean that we repent and express faith to believe time and time again in order to be saved. No. The Christian's position is secure in Christ. What this does mean is the believe, to the believer, Jesus is infinitely more satisfying than any sin. And our lives will demonstrate this in how we live and what we seek after. John Murray provides us with some very helpful thoughts on repentance and faith in his seminal work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Murray writes, Repentance is that which describes the response of turning from sin unto God. This is its specific character, just as the specific character of faith is to receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. Repentance reminds us that if the faith we profess is a faith that allows us to walk in the ways of this present evil world, in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the, the eyes, and the pride of life, in the fellowship of the works of darkness, and our faith is but mockery and deception. True faith is suffused with penitence. And just as faith is not only a momentary act, but an abiding attitude of trust and confidence directed to the Savior, so repentance results in constant contrition. The broken spirit and contrite heart are abiding marks of the believing soul. The broken spirit and contrite heart are abiding marks of the believing soul. In other words, 
Christian life is marked by a brokenness at remaining sin. At one time, you may have expressed faith to believe the gospel, and you might have repented of your sins, but are you believing the gospel today? And do you have a broken spirit and contrite heart when you think of your present sins? Hosea's message to the Israelites was to repent of their sin. Israel was guilty of idol worship and of abandoning their divine husband. They transgressed the covenant and rebelled against God's law. What's important for us to realize is that we do the same. We are prone to do the very same thing. In Christ, we have become partakers of a new covenant. We have been taken from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his Son. What has taken place in this transfer is that you have now received the very righteousness of God through Jesus' perfect obedience. This transfer bears with it a call to walk in obedience to the Lord, just as the Israelites were called to obedience when they were delivered from Egypt. There are times we fail to obey. We fail to obey just like Israel failed to obey. Where they disobeyed and where we disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. We needed a cure, and we have one in Jesus. As spirit-filled Christians, we have an advocate in him. We have an advocate in Jesus with the Father, and we can now turn our eyes to Jesus, express faith to remember what he has done for us, Repent of our many, many sins and experience true, lasting, and abiding joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son. We could never obey those covenant stipulations, but your Son did. And we praise you and thank you for him. We thank you for blood that was spilled to secure the redemption of our souls. We thank you for applying salvation to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I pray that your people would continually remember the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, and that we would embrace it as our tonic to fight against worldliness and idolatry. Thank you that we can have joy in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.